The text before us begins in Romans chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verses 19 through, through 24. I want to begin, though, in verse 17 as we, as we look at our text. Romans 9, verse 17. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. You'll say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy? which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. The text before us is incredibly powerful. The text before us makes us, it makes us think. But you're you're, you're talking about the revelation of God that, that is is being spoken by the Holy Spirit inspiring these very words for us this morning and for Christians throughout time to be able to understand the heart of God and the ways of God and the way in which he works. We, we have within um, our theological circles, philosophical circles, questions that come up, and one question topic that comes up is that which is referred to as the problem of evil. And the premise for for that says something along the lines of this. If God were all-powerful, he'd be able to prevent evil. If God were all-good, he would desire to prevent evil. So if God were both all-powerful and all-good there would be no evil. But there is evil. Therefore, there is no all-powerful and all-good God. And that's where philosophy would take you. Why is there evil? Why does evil exist in a world in which God is all-powerful and God is all-good? And so what people do is they... They think through these things and they debate these things and they go through it and they try to find answers to these things. And there are are many amongst us who would approach a subject like this and and you get get excited about topics like this because you can think through them and philosophize and go through and, and present arguments and debate and to go in a direction of how can I show that we live in a universe in which God is all-powerful and God is all-good and he knows all things and evil exists at the same time. And I, I enjoy those discussions as well. 
I think there's, I think there's solid biblical answers to that as we'll look at some of them this morning. But then there's someone else who may be here this morning and um, maybe you used to debate like that and maybe you used to think like that. But then something's happened in your life in which tragedy has come. Um, where evil has come in and you, 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 don't, you don't want to debate. You, you're just... The, the, the question shifts to, God, why? I mean, it's just a heart. It's just tears flowing. Why? And it's, I know you're all good, and I know you're all powerful, and you're sovereign over all things, but, but why? And as we look at Scripture, we find these questions coming up over and over again. The text before us is a text that deals largely with this subject. And I want you to, to, to know that um, there is going to be, once again, a certain amount of mystery to all these things as we study them. There'll be questions in which you won't, you won't have answers to, possibly, when we leave this place. In Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29, it, it tells us there's, that there's secret things that belong to the Lord. And there are. There's secret things that belong to the Lord. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than ours. We, we, we cannot wrap our minds around everything about God. He is far too glorious for that. But the verse goes on and it tells us there's those things which are revealed. And they belong to us and to our children forever. There's things that are revealed. As we've been, as we've been studying Romans chapter 9, you see a number of questions that he brings up, and we looked at that last week. There's a number of questions that he brings up in, in reference to election, in reference to those who will spend eternity apart from him. Questions that come up like, like in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? What do we say to these things? Is there, is there something that's just not right about God? Is there unrighteousness with him? And the answer that's given is certainly not. Absolutely not. But then he shifts to the giving a reason for why he says certainly not. And the reason is, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. And it goes right to the sovereignty of God and all these things. He doesn't say, is there unrighteousness with God? No, because, well, you see, God's tried his hardest in all of these different areas and it's just not working out and he needs you to meet him halfway and here's all the circumstances. He just goes straight to... I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. And your mind brings you to a place of, okay, how do I understand these things? Why can he still find fault is the next question. How does he still find fault with people? And the response that's given is, but indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing form say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? And so it, 
it leaves us in a place of you, you're not in a place to question him like that. I think of what took place in the life of Job. And you, you see Job loses everything. I mean, like, in a very short period of time, within a day, like, you just look and he loses, he loses kids, all of them, loses possessions, loses his health. I mean, the things that so many of us would look at as being just precious to us, specifically kids. But looking and seeing like everything's taken away from him. We know from the context of, of, of Job that there's something that's taken place where God's there and says, have you considered my servant Job to Satan? And you look and Satan says, well, you've put a hedge about him. You've protected him. And, and God gives Satan permission to do whatever he would want to Job, but he couldn't touch Job. And you see that just everything's taken away from him. And then he says, well, you, you've still preserved him. And so God allows his health to, to go to pieces where there's, there's boils and these things where his wife comes to a place of just curse God and die. And you see Job's response at the beginning where he says things like, like naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I'll return. The Lord gives and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we just look and we, and we see just worship take place. God gives and God takes away. I'm just going to trust him. He, he gave me these things. He took these things away. I, I'm just going to trust him. And you see later on where he says to his wife, should we not accept good from God is, and not adversity? I mean, we get both from him. And you just look and you stand back and you look at Job's response and you're like, man, this guy just, he exalts the sovereignty of God in his response. I mean, he looks and just says, I trust him. And, and it, it says in, in all these things, he didn't sin against God, even though we might look back and say, no, 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 it was Satan that did these things. And, and, and it was, you know, it was these people that, that came in and, and they, they came in and, and, and they took the cattle and they, and they came in and they did these things. Here's the circumstances. But Job just looks back and says, God's sovereign over it all. Should we not accept good for him as, as well as adversity? He gives. He takes away. And then you look as the book goes on to where there's also times where Job begins to question. Begins to question. Like any of us would, wouldn't we? I mean, you would think that most of us, if everything was taken away from us and you're looking at the trials that are coming into your life, where you'd come to a place of just, why? Why, God? Why? Why these things? Why these circumstances? Why would you take that away? Why? And, and he begins to demand answers from God. And you look at God's response to him. If you, why don't you turn with me there for a moment? If you don't have Bibles with you, there, there's Bibles under the pews. But in Job 38, we'll, we'll begin there just for a moment and look at it. We don't see God going to, to Job in Job 38 and chapters following. And... 
in presenting himself as small. God does not present himself as small. God does not present himself as, well, I, I didn't want these things to happen the way that they did, but this is what had happened, and I'm going to try to fix it in the end, but right now I just can't. And he, he does not present himself like that at all. But look with me at, at, at Job chapter 38. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. It's radical there. Prepare yourself like a man, and I'm going to question you now. You answer me on these things. And and then God begins to ask him questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You, you see here with God where, where you see here where he begins to ask questions. Who, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of, of God shouted for joy. Or, or who shut the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? And it, it, it begins just to continue on with questions. Were you there? Tell me, did you see it when I laid the foundations? Were you there? And as this chapter goes on, the chapters to follow go on, Job is listening to this, and I would venture to say he's listening just saying, like, I was not there. God, I don't know these things. I mean, you, you create a gazillion stars and you just speak them into existence. You create things out of nothing. You have the ability to do that. You've been from the very beginning. You're the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And, and your ways are so much higher than mine. And he comes to a place after all of these questions in chapter 40 where he says, in verse 4, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I, I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I've spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. He comes to a place in his life where he just says, I wasn't there. I'm vile. I never should have got mad at you like that or put my finger in your face like that. I never should have done that. What was going on in my heart towards you, almighty God, was wrong. I wasn't there. I didn't know. Your ways are way bigger than mine. Clearly, you're sovereign. You've just spoken to me in a way in which I just see that I'm vile. I'll put my hand over my mouth. I'm, I'm done talking. I'm done accusing. I'm done doing this. My view of you is such that I don't need to have the answers to this. I'll just trust you. And that's key. Because there's some times in this life where you don't have the answers to it. 
You just look, you can, you can say, God, why? Why, God, why? And there comes a place where you just, you don't, he doesn't give you the answers. He doesn't give Job the answers here. You, you kind of want him to say, well, let me explain all of it from beginning to end. And yet God doesn't at all. Because there are, throughout Scripture, and this is just one example, but through Scripture over and over again, God brings us to a place of just at this time, who are you to reply against God? Or it is a good thing. Put your hand over your mouth. Stop now. You don't know. These things are way higher than you. You don't understand them. And you're not in a place to, to bring accusation against me. Um, and even with Job's response, God continues again in the next chapter with a number of different questions. In verse 7, he says, Now prepare yourself like a man, and I'll question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like his? I mean, he brings him to a place of, are you going to try to do this against me? I'm far bigger. I know all things. Not only do I know all things, but he is perfectly holy and perfectly good and perfectly righteous. And there's a plan. He tells us in Romans eight twenty eight, as we looked at in our previous chapter, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called. We know these things. And... Yet there's times in our life where we're looking at our circumstances saying, why? And you can go through the process of trying to figure out the answers to that. You can look and you can say, well, because of sin. But if you're like my son, you're going to continue with more questions. But why? I said, well, because Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. But why? Well, because Satan tempted them. But why? Well, because God threw Satan down to earth when Satan fell because of his, his pride, because of his sin. But why did God throw him down to earth? But why the tree? Why put it there? I mean, did he know that they would eat of the fruit? Well, clearly he did. He knows all things. So why did he put the tree there? Why did he allow Satan to come down? Why not just destroy Satan? Why not make it so that there's no potential for them to fall? Why? Why? And you look and people try to come up with answers to that. There's those that are what they would refer to as process theologians, which would look at an argument like this and say, well, because God didn't know all these things. He didn't know. He thinks, he puts things into motion, and then he steps back, and he sees what's going to happen, and he doesn't know how we're going to respond, and he reacts. Man does this, therefore God does this, and then man does this, and then God does this, and he created a system of sacrifices, and then that wasn't sufficient. And so finally he came to a place of sending his own son as a desperate act of saving mankind. That is not the creator of this universe. We see that he was crucified before the foundations of the earth. There was a plan. There was a plan in place. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve are there, and they're in the garden, and they're hiding themselves. 
They're naked. God says, who told you that you were naked? They're covering themselves with fig leaves. God says, that's not okay. He takes animals and he kills them. And he takes the skin of the animals and he covers them with the skin of the animals. And it's this picture of the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. That there has to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. You see the whole circumstance with Cain and Abel. Cain comes and he, he offers his, his fruit offering. And, and Abel comes and he offers his animal sacrifice. And God says that Abel's is acceptable, but not Cain's. And Cain gets mad and Cain kills Abel. And you look at it and you say, why? Why not the fruit? The fruit's good. I like the fruit. Why would he not like the fruit? That's what, that's what Cain had. And you look and say, no, it can't be the fruit because there, there has to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. It has to be that way. Not only that, but you look at the whole sacrificial system. There has to be the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. A lamb without spot or without blemish. It has to be like that. And you look at all of it and it's, it's, it's all pointing to the lamb of God who would come and take away the sins of the world. Christ Jesus our Lord, the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. All of it is pointing ahead to Christ who is to come. It's not an afterthought. It's not that God's reacting to what we're going to do. It was all this incredible demonstration of the character of our God pointing us to him. You see Job in his final response to God where in in chapter 42 he says, I know that you can do everything. That no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is, is he who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen please and let me speak. You said I'll question you and you shall answer me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Here's a guy, everything was taken from him. And he comes to a place as God questions him to say, please just let me answer I, I've gone way too far. I abhor myself. You are the creator of this universe and you are sovereign and you are good and you're in control of all things and I am nothing. I abhor myself. I repent. I am so sorry. I never should have gone at you like that, God. I never should have done that. Your ways are way higher than mine. You did all these things. Who am I to bring an accusation against you? And you see the same thing in Romans chapter 9 where it's, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like that? And so we go back to Romans chapter 9 with this in mind, is that there are questions that are going to come in your mind where you look and you say, God, why? Why? And there has to come a place where you realize he is sovereign and you're not. He is all-powerful and you're not. He knows all things and we do not. He is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy and perfectly good, and we are not. He sees the end. We don't. He's able to work all things together for his glory, and there's nothing that can stop him. We look in Scripture, and we see it over and over and over again that God is very much in control. We look, and and we... We see like in passages like Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. We see in Isaiah 14, 24, where, where he says, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. 
For verse 27, for the Lord of hosts has purpose, and who will annul it? His hand has stretched out, and who will turn it back? We see in Luke 18, verse 27, the things which are impossible with men, these things are possible with God. Or in Genesis 18, where he says, is there anything that is too hard for the Lord with reference to Sarah having a child? Or in Jeremiah 32, verse 17, oh, Lord God, behold, you have made heavens and earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Jeremiah 32, verse 27, behold, I am the Lord God, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Lastly, Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who's first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. These arguments go over and over again that he is totally and completely in control. And we could read verse after verse after verse just tell you that there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground apart from his will. He knows the number of hairs that are on our head. He's not looking to see what's going to happen next. We see that, that in, in, in Psalm 139, the, the psalmist says, Oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. And there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. You know everything. You're not learning. You're not trying to see what's going to happen next. You know all things. You hear in Isaiah 46, verse 9, where God says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I'll do all my pleasure. So you look at God and he is very clear. He is crystal clear that he does whatsoever he wills to do. And he is sovereign and he knows all things and he is in control. And so we come back to the question of, but why? 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 Why throw Satan down to earth? Why the tree? Why not not put a tree there? Why evil? Why is there evil? If God is all good, and if God is all powerful, and if God hates evil, how can evil exist in this kind of God's world? And you look, and some people may say, well, because Adam and Eve chose to do that. And I would say, yeah, they, they did choose to do that. They did sin. They had a choice between right and wrong, good and evil, and they chose wickedness. He didn't force them to choose wickedness. They chose wickedness because of their own nature and what they did. They went that way, and mankind ever since has chosen wickedness. They did it by their free will. Adam and Eve chose wickedness, but God knew it. Could he have created a world in which that did not happen? Absolutely. Could he have created a world in which there was no Satan, in which there was no tree, and there was no possibility of that? Absolutely. And yet he did not. So we look at these things and we say, well, why? I think our text for this morning helps us with this. In verse 17, again, it says in Romans chapter 9, but the scripture says of the, to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Is Pharaoh someone who's a believer? No, he's an unbeliever. He's a terrible guy. He's wicked. And God says, I raised you up. 
for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my, may, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Did that happen? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. You look and, and you see the plagues that came upon the Egyptians one after another and, and you see it where the hail comes down upon the Egyptian but it does not come down upon God's people. You see these plagues, they come down upon the Egyptians but they don't come down upon God's people. She shows the, the wrath of God upon evil and at the same time his love, his unconditional love for his people. You see it all throughout the plagues that are there. Now, in verse 22, it says this. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? We see that God has revealed himself. Not only... His wrath and his power, but also his goodness. You look in, and it goes on and it says, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called. And so you look and you think, has God displayed himself? My answer to you would be yes, absolutely he has. I mean, I look at this universe in which we live and I do not believe that God's the author of evil. Let me make that very clear. I do not believe that God's the author of evil. I don't believe that he forced them to go in that direction. I don't believe that he created it in a way in which he was going to make them do this. Man sinned. Adam and Eve sinned by their own wickedness. But it doesn't take away God's sovereignty. It doesn't make it so that he's back saying, I don't know what's going to happen next. He's very much in control of it. And so you look at it and you say, why did he create a world in which he knew these things would take place? And I look and I say, well, what if God wanted to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Um, we love him, don't we? But why do we love him? Why, why do you love Christ? Look, and here's some of the things that I love him for. I love his power, that he's in control of everything. I love his righteousness, that he always does what is right. He always does what is good. I love his holiness, that he cannot be a part of sin. But I love his grace. I love his grace. I love his grace that when the prodigal son goes away and just wastes all of his inheritance, that we serve a God where he gives us this picture of the father running to his son. I love that picture of God because he runs to me and he runs to you. When he saw him still afar off, what did he do? He ran. I love the picture that we see of God where he says things like, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Why is it that that's the case? Because we see a God displayed for us on the cross and his son Christ who loved us so much that he gave us his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We have this picture of God where we look at him and we see 
incredible love. I mean, love that is something that, that we look at and we just say, there is nothing, there is no one like you in all the earth. Look at the way in which you have loved us. You sent us your son and Christ willingly went to the cross and you see him there upon the cross and you see them with the crown of thorns on his head and pulling out his beard and spitting in his face and casting lots for his clothing and all of these things prophesied beforehand. And you see all of this happening where they're saying things like you saved others but you cannot save yourself and you hear him pray things like father forgive them for they know not what they do you look and you see that he's been nailed to a cross his arms his hands and his feet and there's holes in his hands and his feet and you see all this taking place and you look at it and it's behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world where you look at christ upon the cross and it is the most incredible display of the power of god and the wrath of god all of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God coming upon his son as he's there upon the cross to where he's hanging there on the cross taking all of God's wrath upon himself so that you and I would never have to experience it for all eternity. You'll never have to experience it, but it wasn't that God showed us his wrath by putting his wrath upon us. He showed us his wrath by taking it upon himself that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And I love him for that. I love him. You look and you say... A God, a God like that, creator of all that exists, and he hangs on a cross and takes the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God upon himself. He invented the nails and he invented the nerve endings. He created all of these things and he shows us his power and he shows us his wrath and then he shows us his grace in which he says, Whosoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. And he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit. And he draws us unto himself even when we're running away from him. As Romans chapter 9 shows us, we're running in opposite of him. And, and he calls us and he changes us and he causes our eyes to be open. And he takes our hearts of stone and he changes them into hearts of flesh. And he does this for us that we might believe in him, that we might follow him, that we might live for him. He makes us new creations in him to display his love for us for all eternity. And it's just, it's amazing. You look and you see the love of Almighty God towards us. In eternity, a trillion years from now, you're not going to sit there and go, does he really love me? I don't know. I don't know if he loves me. I mean, he has shown that there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friend. And he has done that for us. The just for the unjust. The holy for the one who is a sinner. Almighty God creator of all that exists, becoming a man, the least of all men, and then becoming sin for us so that we wouldn't have to have it. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because he was condemned for us. He became sin for us. So we'll be there in all eternity in heaven, praising him and looking at him and saying, who is like you, O Lord? You did these things. You accomplished these things. I didn't deserve any of it, and yet you gave us your son, and you took the wrath that I deserved upon yourself. You did this, and you have shown me grace, and you have shown me love, and you have showed me mercy, and you have been faithful when I was faithless. You are so good. And he has displayed himself. I would venture to say without any doubt that we see him in the heart of our creator in a way in, we, in which we never would have seen him had we just been ushered into heaven and born there. We see the creator of the universe in all of his splendor in which we will worship him both now and forevermore and praise him and adore him 
and live for him and delight in him and find joy in him because we didn't deserve any of it and yet he has given it to us. I'll tell you, I, I look and, and I see in the book of, book of Revelation that the end will come. And in Revelation 5 and verse 9, if you want to turn there, let's turn there. We'll close with this. Revelation 5, 9. We'll be there. And we're going to We're going to be saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. You've redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth and then John says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. <laughs> Did he make his power known? Did he show us his wrath. Did he make known to us the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy? My response to you is absolutely yes, he did. He, he made it known. And I assure you, although you may not have all the answers here on earth as far as why God, why that? You don't have to have the answers. You don't have to have the answers to every circumstance that's in your life to say, I'll, I'll trust you. Just to say, I'll trust you. I don't need to have all the answers. I will trust you. I see your power. I see your glory. And I, I will trust you. Not only will I trust you, but I will worship you. In spirit and in truth and all that is within me. For you are a sovereign God and you are all good and you are all holy and we are wicked and we are vile and we abhor ourselves. But you have saved us and we will spend eternity with you praising you for who you are. In Romans chapter 9, we are left once again with a view of God. That brings us to a place, I pray, of saying, oh, how he loves us. At the same time, brings us to a place of saying, and oh, how we love him. We love him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
We love you. We praise you, O Lord God, for you revealing yourself to this incredible audience of angels, principalities, powers, seraphim and cherubim, and every person who has ever existed here on this earth, that you are holy and that you are good and there is no darkness in you whatsoever. At the same time, you are, you are sovereign over all things. And mankind is sinful and desperate need of your grace. And yet, Lord, you have decreed things to take place to display to us the great love in which you have loved us. And we are here this morning to say, oh, how you love us. At the same time, we love you because you first loved us. I pray that the rest of our service would be filled with just us expressing the great love in which we love you. For you became sin for us. You died on the cross for us. And you tell us whosoever believes in you would not perish but have everlasting life. And that is all of our hope, both now and for all eternity, is that you are our Savior. May we respond with hearts that just give praise to you as we partake in communion. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.